Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, analyse developments in Central Asia, and examine reports of how the Wagner Group is recruiting from Russian prisons. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 8th of August, day 166. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and Telegraph correspondent, James Kilner. I started off by asking Dom Nichols for the latest news from the war zone. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. The The main news, I think, over the weekend is the dance that Ukraine is making Russia engage in, by by which I mean forcing Russia to move forces from the Donbass region down to Kurzon. This is something we've been keeping track on recently. This idea, long heralded, uh, long sort of telegraphed idea of a counteroffensive in the south from U- Ukraine, which we've said over and over makes perfect sense. That's where they need to need to push back. This this war cannot end with Russia holding the south as it is uh, if Ukraine wants to continue to be a viable, sovereign, economically um, economically capable state. So it has to push back in the south. So we we know that's going to that's long coming. Um, there have been a number of small counterattacks, none of them sort of knitting together to make a counteroffensive. But um, it's been so so long heralded that a lot of people have been saying, "Well, that, that's a bit daft." You know, you don't tell you don't tell your enemy what you're about to do. Um, however, I I wonder if actually it's a very a very smart move. And um, yeah, I'm thinking about the old the old military expression: the the diversion you've been ignoring is actually the enemy's main attack. So if you're a Russian commander in the Donbass and you've got all this stuff coming out from Ukraine in the in the south, you know, do, do, you, do you respond to it and move forces around there, denuding your capability in the Donbass? Or do you just sit tight and think it's all a, all, all a massive bluff? Well, they've decided it's not a massive bluff and they've started moving moving uh, forces 
down to the south. We've seen that in increasing numbers, more Russians flowing over what's left of the bridges into the the, the small portion of Ukraine north and west of the Dnieper River that they that they hold. Um, Ukraine's been attacking these lines and the bridges again. And I think it's all rather, rather clever. Now, if you if you take it, one of the one of the British Army's principles of war is concentration of force, and it exists in in other other militaries as well. So Russia in the Donbass were, were existing in a, a sort of small piece of real estate under under electronic warfare and surface to air missile umbrella. They're, you know they're nicely protected. They're looking after themselves. If they choose to move, if they choose to move in small penny packets uh, down to the south. Not only does it take a long time, you know, they're working on exterior lines of lines of communication, really. Although the you know, separatist areas are are, are 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 compliant regimes, I guess, but but it's still a long way for Russia to move. And do you do each of those little packets moving have their own electronic warfare bubbles, their own surface-to-air missiles, their own flank protection, logistic protection, um, or do you take risk? So Russia's left with this really quite quite tricky dilemma as to whether or not to take risk moving forces south um, or to try moving one one big big blob that can look after itself in which case you massively denude the capability in in the Donbass so so it's a it's a very interesting problem that they've been faced with and of course the other thing is that it's very hard to move and shoot at the same time so this Russian force if they are if they are sending forces down to the south to, to reinforce the Kurds on front um, they're unlikely to be able to, to take any real offensive action on the way, it is possible, of course, for militaries to to move and shoot to fight fight on the march, fight from the line of march. But actually, you know, we've seen this this Russian army in action, and I don't think it's capable of doing that. So, at the very least, what Ukraine has done here is buy themselves time, uh, time as Russia rejigs its forces, moves some to the south, no, maybe move back, or yeah, where's the thrust going to come? So it's bought itself time, time to rest and time to plan and time for more weapons to to flow in. Um, so th- at the very least, and at the at the at the best, what it might might be doing is setting the mother of all traps for Russia to to move forces across the Dnieper River, which it, it can then cut off, um, or it can attack these small penny packets as they as they move down from the Donbass. So very interesting move there from Ukraine. I don't think it's I don't think it presages a uh, an imminent huge counteroffensive. I think they are. Uh, they'd be wise to, to to sort of sit and wait wait this one out for another few weeks to see quite what what Russia does if it, if it continues to thin out its forces from the Donbass and and decide where to move its artillery, which is increasingly having problems getting to the front. So pretty pretty smart move, I think, by Ukraine, and I think that's what we are seeing, and I, I think we're going to see that for. Um, Thanks, for a Don. Can I just yet. stay with you before we go to James to ask about what's going on in the in the uh, stands in Central Asia? Don, can I stay with you? Um, we've just got some news in. Kiev has called for the establishment of a demilitarized zone around a nuclear power station. This is uh, the station at Zaporizhia, Europe's largest atomic power. Uh, station. It was occupied by the Russians early in the in, in, early in the invasion. In recent days, we've seen over the weekend, it's been the scene of quite a few strikes that have damaged several of the structures, forcing the shutdown of a reactor. Can you just um, could could you could you talk our listeners through why the Russian army might be doing it and just the the, the danger? Just spell out the dangers of what's happening here. Well, I mean, the, the dangers are f- flinging heavy metal around a nuclear power plant. I mean, as um when we met uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, in in uh, in Kiev a couple of weeks ago, he was very. One of the first things he said was that you know, there are five nuclear power plants in in um, in Ukraine. I mean, they are extremely sensitive sites. They don't take well, don't mix well with high explosive, um, which is one of the reasons Russia 
put such effort into going getting them in the first place in, in Zaporizhia at least. Uh, I mean, there is a long term long term aim, I suppose. You could try and you know, deny the country's power and sort of strangle the country economically, but but actually, I think a larger part of that was the um, was the shock factor, um, and the as we've seen. As has been reported, that Russia is firing from those areas, knowing that that Ukraine is very, very unlikely to fire back. So, it is it is exceedingly reckless. Um, I think the international community broadly supports that view. That is uh, the view I think of the Atomic um, International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. So, yeah, operating in this in this way in this area is is extremely reckless. I mean, we. We we talk about it. We we note correctly note it, but but I mean it, it is it is it does sort of get submerged in the rest of the um, egregious and outrageous things that Russia has done in this war. If it had been in and of itself an act, one one of the first acts or you know standalone act, I mean we'd all be absolutely shouting from the rafters about it. It's, it's so it's so dangerous and stupid, um, and they they know what they're doing. They are they have a, a much lower. Or much higher threshold, if you like, for risk. They 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 are less likely to pay attention to um to the uh, to the comments from the West. But I mean, it 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 is it is a stupid thing to do. Um, Ukraine not yet found a a real answer to how to how to deal with that problem. Um, but it is it is one that the the world needs to take very seriously. And and I would hope there are there were more uh, voices saying this time and time again at, at a very senior level saying that we need to have have an arrangement about these nuclear nuclear fa- power facilities it's just ridiculous to expect that they can um be used as uh, as legitimate uh, pieces of real estate in a war thanks tom uh, james thank you so much for your time and for joining us today previously uh, you came on and told us all about the situation in kazakhstan where you've been reporting from um just to invite you back i know you, we're also going to talk about russian recruitment and the wagner group uh in russia but before that would you tell us a little bit about any updates you've got from the central asian states um to do with this war and the current geopolitical situation hi there thanks for having me back I think it's been about a month since I was on this uh, podcast from Kazakhstan. Uh, I've been back in the UK since then, but Central Asia has been having its uh, own problems linked to the war in Ukraine. I think it was last last week, Tuesday or Wednesday, Dmitry Medvedev, the deputy head of Russia's Security Council, Vladimir Putin is the head, um, he issued a 4am statement on his... Russian social media website, which is called Vakonte, um, about how Russia should take back Kazakhstan and Georgia because they weren't real countries. This obviously set off major alarm bells um, in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan and Georgia, um, and upset a lot of people. We've, this is sort of the culmination of a lot of things and various Russian talking heads and Kremlin insiders have been threatening Kazakhstan and Georgia uh, specifically for some time. Within about 10 minutes, this this note was, was deleted, but, it, but even so, it, incredibly alarming. Uh, the Kremlin says that Medvedev's Vakonte um, social media account was hacked. If it was hacked, that's a huge security uh, problem for the Russians. But if it wasn't hacked, that's a huge security problem for Kansan and Georgia, obviously. Uh, it's, it's also... Uh, 14 years 
this weekend when uh, the anniversary of the Georgia-Russia war of August 2008, which I had the, uh, which I saw at first hand reporting for Reuters. Um, so Georgia-Russian aggression in the region is, is very much uh, in everyone's mind. Alongside that, we've seen uh, a Russian bank has said it wants to buy a small bank in Kyrgyzstan. This is part of the economic fallout of the sanction, Western sanctions imposed on Russia, specifically on the banking sector, which has knocked Russian banks out of this swift international banking system, which makes it very hard for them to do any international trade, to move money around, etc. If a Russian bank can buy a Kyrgyz bank, then they may get access to the SWIFT system. It does get very complicated because uh, Kyrgyzstan doesn't want to be seeing to be helping Russia dodge Western sanctions. We've seen, and we've seen more of that sort of thing going on in, in Kazakhstan as well. Um, switching over to Uzbekistan quickly, there was, um, how to put it, there was um, unrest in the Western Kalakalpakstan region at the end of July, beginning of August, and police crackdown killed 21, 22 people. This is the third violent crackdown unrest we've seen in Central Asia this year, which is, I mean, even, I mean, Central Asia, inherently unstable region, former Soviet Central Asia, has lots of uh, sort of stress areas and the authoritarian bent of its uh, leadership is continually trying to stamp down on them. But three in a year is remarkable. We had Kazakhstan uprising, attempted revolution, really, in January. We had a uh, which killed uh, 220, 230 people, I think. Um, the Tajik security forces, I mean, mounting an operation in the south of the country there, uh, since about May, that's killed an unknown number of people, but certainly dozens. And now Uzbekistan. The Uzbekistan unrest was triggered by a, um, a constitution that President Shavkat Mirziyoyev um, was trying, uh, not constitution, sorry, referendum to change the constitution that Shavkat Mirziyoyev was trying to impose. In the constitution... Uh, Kalakal, Pakistan, which is nominally an autonomous region within the Uzbek state, um, was going to have its ability to go fully independent taken away from it. <coughs> this set off alarm bells in Kalakal, Pakistan, which is a very poor, most western region of Uzbekistan, suffering from various health and environmental problems. Uh, people pour down the street. It's, it's, it's all um, linked to the low quality of life, lack of economic prospects, um, the, the uh, hangover from COVID, the war in Ukraine, the downturn in the Russian economy, which traditionally generates hundreds of thousands of jobs for poor Uzbeks who migrate to Russia each year and send cash back to their family in Uzbekistan. All these problems came together in Kanakal, Pakistan, in um, in the end at the end of July, and there were clashes. There were big, big street protests, which are remarkable in Uzbekistan. Arguably, one of the more authoritarian Central Asian states, and a police crackdown ensued. Um, cut off the internet, 
state of emergency, gave police huge powers, and reports say that, like I said, 20, 21, 22 people were killed. I've also seen lots of video of heavy-handed police rounding up demonstrators afterwards, going into blocks of flats, fully armed with shotguns and armour and helmets and dragging out men and beating them on the floor and then taking them away to uh, prison van, etc. So, as well as the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine, you've got increasingly unstable Central Asia, which is really Vladimir Putin's backyard. He really considers it his his sort of domain, and he's become increasingly irritated that uh, the Central Asian states have not been particularly supportive of his war in Ukraine. We saw that in June when Kazakh President uh, Tokayev was sitting next to Putin on a stage in St. Petersburg and publicly said he didn't support independence for the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic in Donbass in eastern Ukraine, which angered Putin. Um, and then, and now you've got all this increasing unrest. Now, interestingly, the Central Asian states are trying to realign themselves in this great geopolitical battle that's unfolding in front of us. And this is something that Central Asian carnates and leaders have always had to do play off Russia or the Soviet Union against Western powers, including Britain and increasingly uh, China. And with the war in Ukraine, Putin's war in Ukraine, they're becoming very wary of Putin and his his uh, warmongering, especially when people like Medvedev, who's very close to Putin, start saying that Kazakhstan and Georgia should not be states. So they're continually trying to realign themselves and... Putin and the Kremlin have really lost lost influence and credibility to uh, to some degree in the region. The, the, the region can't um, totally split from the influence of the Kremlin. It's just impossible. Linguistic, education, family, business, cultural ties, etc. I mean, that's not possible. But they've become very wary of the Kremlin. Now, the Kremlin understands that and is trying to claw back some some of its lost credibility. And my reading is, in this vein, uh, Putin gave Shavkat Mirziyoyev, the president of Uzbekistan, Russia's highest civic award about two weeks ago, the Alexander Nevsky Medal, um, which he really um, only hands out to, you know, only a handful of times a year. And he's given one to Mirziyoyev. And it came two weeks after Mizioyev's policeman, the Uzbek policeman, uh, clashed with demonstrators and killed, we think, a couple of dozen and then rounded up a few hundred more. Officially, the award was given to Mizioyev for promoting Uzbek-Russian friendship, etc., which Mizioyev has done since he came to power in 2016. Unofficially, it looks like he's, uh, Putin's trying to claw back favour uh, in the region. And last point on, on the Central Asia issue, um, incidentally, reports, unconfirmed reports, it has to be said, said that Tokayev, the Kazakh president, had refused the same award only a month earlier. So uh, there's lots of dynamics playing out in Central Asia. It's all linked to Russia, the Kremlin, and also the wider impact of the war in Ukraine. 
Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, James. Thank you for that overview of some of the developments in in Central Asia. Can I stay with you um, just for the moment? I know you've been writing and thinking about some of the recruitment issues that the Russian military forces are having uh, in Russia. Can you tell our listeners about what you've what you've read and what you've written? Right. So I had the um, responsibility and perhaps pleasure of manning the Telegraph's Russia desk this weekend. And um, two, I mean, there's various st- stories that, that came through 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 the desk, um, in, including updates to to what Dominic was saying about the uh, Russian be- reinforcement of its soldiers down in uh, the southern front and so on. But two two other stories which popped up was um, were um, a story about Kremlin, the Kremlin mercenary group Wagner Group, and its recruitment methods. And another one about how Ukrainian partisans have been apparently targeting Russian installed collaborator officials in occupied Kurzon region, possibly ahead of the uh, expected um, Ukrainian offensive. Briefly, sticking with the mercenary story, um, so Wagner groups this very shadowy mercenary group which was set up in 2014 by um, a guy with the nickname Putin Chef. He's a, his, his real name is Yevgeny Prigrozhin. And um, he's a Kremlin insider. He made his money in the catering business, among other things, in the 1990s and became mates of Putin. And the reason he's called Putin Chef is because he was photographed in a full chef's outfit serving Putin dinner once in about 2001 um, at one of his restaurants in Petersburg. Anyway, uh, Prigozhin and Putin are mates, and uh, Putin leans on Prigozhin um, uh, regularly to to get things done. In 2014, he was tasked with financing this Kremlin-linked mercenary group called Wagner. Um, it's It's been a deniable asset for the Kremlin since then. Um, and um, it's sent around the world to do its, you know, in you know, blunt terms, its dirty work. It props up regimes in Africa and the Middle East, which, uh, you know, struggle, would struggle to get Western support or uh, any clean bill of health from any human rights organisation. Um, it can push the Kremlin's agenda in these sort of corners of the world, and the Kremlin can, can deny it. The really interesting thing is that in this war in Ukraine, Wagner Group, we've seen over the last few months, has become increasingly important to the Russian army and their operations in Donbass. This is partly or possibly wholly linked to the heavy casualty rate the Russian army has taken. Um, There's been some accounts as many as 75,000 casualties, dead and injured, which is a huge number, something similar to the entire British Army. Dominic will know far more than I about this. Um, but a, a massive number. So th- there's a general recruitment drive across Russia by the Russian Army to um, patch up its battered frontline forces, etc. And at the same time, uh, the Wagner Mercury Group has, has, has really come out in the open um, and is openly recruiting in Russia uh, for the first time which is a remarkable um, development. This includes internet videos set to music, 
uh, you know, glorifying being a mercenary. This is, this includes roadside billboards, again, glorifying being a mercenary and, and websites from saying adventure and camaraderie if you sign up and become a mercenary in this Russian group called Wagner. Uh, they, you know, they try and frame their, their sort of branding is, you know, where the orchestra, reference to Richard Wagner, obviously, uh, with the orchestra looking for musicians, this sort of thing, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they're offering uh, a massive amount of money, equivalent uh, to £2,700 a month, which is a huge, huge salary in Russia um, uh, for, for, for fighters, et cetera. But even this doesn't seem to be enough. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks and what I was report- one of the stories I was reporting about this weekend is that the Wagner Group has now, have now started recruiting in Russian prisons, which is a completely remarkable, um, truly extraordinary step. So apparently they've recruited up to 1,000 inmates from 17 different penal colonies around Russia. They've, you know, their recruitment, uh, recruiters have personally gone there, held workshops and, and, and spoken to potential recruits. Um, they prefer to recruit... Uh, robbers and murderers um, over people who may may have been sentenced to some sexual crime, etc. And then they go through a physical test, um, uh, have an interview, and then uh, they sign on the line and they're off, they're out of prison, and they do a couple of weeks training, and then they're sent to the front line. If they survive six months in the front line, the, the inmates then get a presidential pardon and they're free back in Russian society. It is a truly remarkable state of affairs. So, uh, that, yeah, that was that's the Wagner story. And then really quickly on this assassination story, um, uh, on Friday, the, I think it's Friday, uh, the mayor of, the Russian-imposed mayor of Kherson City, was taken ill after eating some food, uh, apparently, that his new chef had made. He was rushed to a hospital in Crimea, about 170 miles away, and the um, the doctors there decided to put him into an induced coma and then flew him up to a specialist hospital in Moscow for more results, where he is now lying on a ventilator. Uh, their toxicology results due... Um, and there's lots of rumours swirling around that he may have been poisoned in a, an apparent assassination attempt, um, although Russian authorities, uh, officials are saying that um, he is uh, he's just very tired and is maybe impacted by COVID, etc. cetera. Um, uh, now, this is all part of an increased... Uh, pattern that we've seen of assassination attempts by Ukrainian partisans in occupied Kherson specifically. They've they they've killed they had killed at least two people, two officials previously in car bombs. And on Saturday a, um an assassin shot dead the deputy mayor of another city in occupied Kherson as this guy was leaving his apartment block that morning, shot him in the head. With a pistol. So he was at least a third high-ranking Russian-imposed official to be assassinated in occupied Kherson in, I think, the last couple of months. And we also have 
the mayor, the Russian-imposed mayor of Kherson City, lying in a, on a ventilator in Moscow, possibly having been poisoned as well. Um, the timing of this is interesting, as Dominic was saying earlier. Ukraine have flagged up that they may be uh, preparing for a massive offensive in the Kherson region on the southern front. These assassinations have seemingly ramped up at the same time. They could, they could be linked. We don't know. Well, thank you very much for that, James, and thank you for your reporting. Dom, I know you want to jump in quickly with your own story of your brush with the founder of the Wagner Group. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that James is saying that Yevgeny Prigozhin is now being very, very open about his connections to to the Wagner Group because I have had a bit of a bit of a brush with him in the past. So in April 2020, I did a, a deep dive on on Wagner. You can have, you'll still be online. You can find it online, um, based around some Africom US Af- Africa Command Africom satellite imagery that showed Wagner Group. Um, equipment in use in Libya so did a did a big piece on that and um, I mean not at the time not a huge amount was known about the Wagner group so um, I was sort of relying on on a few a few sources and a bit of a bit of international media and I and I referred to a report in it was either the Austrian or the Czech media um, that said Yevgeny Prigozhin who was who was thought to be thought to be the you know the head of this this group not been seen in in public in two years, and there was speculation. This this overseas report was saying there was speculation that he might actually be dead. So I included that in my in my piece and and sourced it from, uh, like I say, the Austrian or the Czech Czech media. And a couple of days later, the Telegraph got about nine pages of thick legalese from uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin's uh, Lund- well, one of his London-based lawyers. Um, fire and brimstone calling for all sorts of retractions and this is this is a ridiculous slur on their client and so on and so forth and threatening to take out an ipso against me personally now ipso is the independent press standards organization it's the voluntary organization the telegraph sign up to which which seeks to um to hold to hold media organizations to account those those that um those that are unafraid of challenge and if we get things wrong we'll we'll say it so there's some are in in ipso not all Anyway, the thing with an Ipso is that, that anybody, if we write we write a story or, or say anything on the podcast, and, and people say, "Oh, that's 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 wrong, that's factually inaccurate," you can then write to Ipso, and if they if they find in your favour, then Ipso say to us, "We need to pre- um, present a retraction with the same the same scope and attention as the original article." So, if the original article was the front page splash, then hey, you 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 get a front page retraction of that of that article. Um, Anyway, so so Yevgeny Prigozhin's lawyers said they were going to take an ipso out against me, but you can only challenge facts, not opinion. And the only the only fact that I had alleged and sourced to Australian slash Czech media, well, I should have I should have remembered that before I started this. I do apologise. But anyway, the only the only fact that I that I alleged, or the the only allegation was that that he might he might be dead. So that's the only thing that that ipso could actually find against me. So. Like with any of these disputes, the best thing to do is to sort it out as early as possible, as low as possible, before it all all um, you know, gets out of control and uh, and you know draws in many many other things. So we wrote back through through our lawyers here, wrote back to Mr. Bregosian's lawyers and said, um, "Yeah, we stand by everything everything we say in the article. Um, however, if Mr. Bregosian uh, feels that strongly that he's he's willing to take out an ipso, then." We can sort this out very easily. He can meet with our defence and security editor, Dom Nichols, for lunch. And by turning up for this this nice lunch, he would prove that he is, quote, not dead. 
And so this was the offer that we put back to Yevgeny Prigozhin, and, and back came a reply from the lawyer who, who didn't sort of knock it out of the park, but we were kind of dancing around for a little while about um, about where we should meet and how it can happen. And bearing in mind, at the time, Yevgeny Prigozhin had a quarter of a million dollar bounty on him from the from the U.S., um, administration, so he wasn't going to leave Russia. So I, I offered to go over to Moscow and have a nice, nice dinner with him, um, and then we never heard back from them. So maybe it's still out there. Maybe my my dinner with Yevgeny Prigozhin is still out there. But at the time, they were very keen to point out that he had nothing to do with Wagner. Um, didn't know what what the fuss was all about. He was he was a, a restaurateur from St. Petersburg. Had a nice lucrative contract, catering contract with the Kremlin, and that was that was it. Um, nothing to see here. But uh, so if there's an update to that story, I will I will let you know. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. We, we've, we've heard that story before. Finally, I'm quite glad that we finally got it on the podcast. Um, Tom, can I stay with you? You've been reading this uh, embargoed Rusi report. It came out at one. Uh, lots of interesting things from it. What did you make of it? Yeah, this is fascinating. This is a report out today, out, in fact, uh, well, 24, 34 minutes ago from Rusi, the Royal United Services Institute, a London-based uh, defence and security think tank. They have been in, some of their research has been in Ukraine looking at weapons, uh, and equipment that is actually that has either been fired at Ukraine or um, or procured by Ukraine, and specifically they were looking at twenty seven uh, pieces of equipment from uh, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, electronic warfare kit, and uh, and communications or secure secure radios. So twenty seven different types of, of of equipment, individual items, and what they found was there were four hundred and fifty different unique foreign-made components in these uh, in these systems. Um, 317 came from the US. After that, it was uh, Japan was the biggest with, with 34, Taiwan 30, um, and then many other countries in the West and China uh, and Britain. Britain had five, five components were sourced, uh, sourced to Britain. Now, they're not suggesting that these companies, these countries, and they do list the, com- the, the companies in there, they're not suggesting these these com- companies or countries have been doing anything wrong to try and get round sanctions, evading sanctions, or or you know anything like that. They are they are suggesting there's this uh, de- department called Line X that was formed in the in the Cold War, worked uh, as part of the KGB. They're suggesting that this this thing still exists. I don't know what it's called now, but let's call it Line X for for argument. Still exists um, part of or a, a bit of the SVR, so Foreign Overseas Russia's Overseas Intelligence Service and the GRU, Military Intelligence, the Salisbury Boys, um, suggesting that Line X is a mashup of of the two of these going out sourcing Western equipment. Um, either legitimately and then repurposing it purposing it for illegitimate military means or getting kit through third parties and they they list um list companies in hong kong actually list the owners of those companies I'm not going to say it here for all sort of legal reasons but it's in the it's in the report and suggest that there's ways that they are they're getting around the um sanctions and and getting this very very high-tech western kit into the Russian weapon systems. For example, they talk about an Orland 10 drone, a small reconnaissance drone which Russia's been using to then identify locations for subsequent strike by artillery and, and, and other, other weapons. But they're saying that in the Orland 10, they found that the camera is produced by Sony, the gimbal that mounts the camera is produced by Hextronic, which is a US firm. They're saying the uh, flight control system is based on uh, technology from ST Microelectronics from Switzerland, and the engine is, is Japanese. And, and they're saying that the radios that are then a lot of secure radios that then use that data, use those data and send send um, uh, information up to the artillery brigade headquarters is based on um, U.S. analog devices and Texas Instruments, two companies, analog devices, Texas Instruments. And it says that actually 
So the, the vast majority of the components were American, and of those, Texas Instruments had over 50, including um, components in, in the KH-101 uh, uh, land attack cruise missile, um, other the kamikaze drone, other radios, etc., etc. Uh, at least 10 of these items were under U.S. export controls. So, so they should not have gone anywhere near Russia anyway, let alone... Um, through this circumvented sort of third party cut out false false companies set up all over the world um and it's a it's a fascinating report about the extent of russia's work to gain western technology but more importantly how critical these components are to some of the weapon systems and the data communication nodes that are, that are doing so much damage or have done so much damage in in the war so the idea Put, put, put forward by Rusi is not, not only here's what they found by examining this stuff um, in Ukraine and elsewhere, and we should commend them for their work in, in you know so doing because it's you know, dangerous work. Um, but also, if the if the means of controlling these components were were tightened up, then think about the impact it would have on Russia's war machine. And and they're saying that this um, that it could it could fundamentally uh, undermine. The, the Russian war effort and uh, it says a quote the degradation in Russian military capability could be made permanent if appropriate policies are implemented unquote so it's on Rus's website now and we got a report online others have as well I think they work with Reuters um, for it so Reuters will have have probably more more in depth <clears throat> excuse me and, uh, and some other pages but but others uh, others are covering it we've got it up online and uh, and we'll we'll Tart that up through the day, um, but no fascinating report there from Rusi and speaks of of even though you might have great size, sometimes it really does come down to small natures of very very critical components, and if you can control those as as should be possible, um, then then you really can have an effect on the uh, on a military capability. But I, I commend that report to uh, to everyone. So just quickly before we go to our final thoughts, um, Dom and James, I mean, what you've both been telling me, Dom, from you, we've got the sort of degradation of Rus- Russian materiel, reliant as so much of it is on on uh, Western and um, Chinese and Taiwanese tech. And James, you, your report on the Wagner Group um, recruiting rather desperately from the, Ru- the Russian prison system. The, all of this seems to add together. It seems to me anyway to be the long term picture for the Russian armed forces isn't isn't a good one. Is that is that a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment, and as I as I mentioned, I think last week, I think what we're there is a there's an operational pause at the moment. Not quite sure quite what's happening down in Kherson, so you know, prepare to eat more words there in the next few days. But I think there's a bit of an operational pause, and we're now looking at it's onto the the economy and the bigger picture, international alliance side. Who can survive the longest? Because these sanctions are going to start biting with Russia. We've seen how vulnerable they are to. Um, as I've just described in, the, in this report, how vulnerable they are to to a small number of supply lines. Um, so yes, they're long term prospects for the army anyway. Don't forget they've also got, they've got a very big navy and a very capable submarine forces. There's lots more to it, but the army is is largely broken over this. Um, Ukraine likewise are uh, the, the Ukraine forces are exhausted and need 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 replenishment. Um, it was announced over the weekend that uh, Sweden has joined Canada. Uh, Holland and and Britain in training Ukrainian forces uh, outside of outside of Ukraine. Um, so Ukraine have to have to survive. Have to hang in there. That's why one of the reasons they've applied to the IMF for the second biggest loan in the IMF's history. So they their economy has to survive um, because it's, it's like, I think it's turning 
two, who who can survive the longest? Because the the, the military situation is calcifying. So it's it's then which economy can survive the longest? So, so yes, I think I think all these issues are they all play into one another. Thank you, Dom. James, is there anything you'd like to add to that? And if not, no worries. We can just go to your your final thoughts. What should our listeners uh, What should our listeners be thinking of from what you've been saying? Uh, maybe especially around these Central Asian states. Um, yeah, I mean, really quickly, the only thing to add about uh, what what Dom was talking about was um, something else we reported on the last few days was Iranian drones <clears throat> possibly already turning up in Moscow. Uh, and Russian military bases ahead of being deployed down in Donbass. So I think the Kremlin is uh, does understand that it needs to replenish its supply of kit. And as Dawn was saying, the international alliances that it's building uh, with Iran, uh, with Turkey, Turkish President um, Erdogan was in uh, Sochi last week as well, talking to Putin. This is all. This is where the uh, the war is, is is heading. The sort of the attritional nature of it means that both sides need re- resupplies really badly. Um, as far as my final thoughts, um, I think uh, this recruitment drive in Russia is incredibly interesting. The, the, the Russian media is full of stories about how they've recruited actually forty battalions of volunteers, which is a huge amount of men. Um, but it's not really clear what quality these these so-called volunteers are. I've seen videos of some men in their 50s and 60s training up on a Kalashnikov rifles, etc. Um, so their quality um, will be interesting. Um, also, we reported that 25,000 soldiers have been moved down to the southern Kherson um, front line by Russia. Um, so if I was watching out, if, well, I am watching out, um, I, will, I will be focusing every day on what's going on around Kurzon. And if these long-range artillery systems that Ukraine is now deploying from the West can take out the bridges over the Dnipro River, which will isolate Kherson City, um, and if that precedes a massive offensive from Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, James. Uh, just to finish, Dom, I know you had some thoughts on the uh, recent Amnesty International report and its reaction that it's that it's got in Ukraine and and in the world. Um, just for your final thought, you want to take us through some of some of your um, some of your musings there? Yeah, sorry. Okay, uh, very briefly. So the Amnesty report last week, which I won't go over again, but I noticed yesterday they they put out a, a not apology apology. I think they said they something like they regret anyone that. I don't know, blah, 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 blah. You know, it wasn't an apology. It was just a sort of holding reply in response to the massive pushback that um, that they received. I, I mean, I think the real danger for that amnesty report is that it, it just leans into the whataboutery and the false equivalence arguments that are put over by many people, be they useful idiots or people act- actively working for, for Russia. Because I think there's a, the, the fundamental difficulty I had with that or the reason I rejected it very quickly when I when I read it was this idea that that U- Ukraine by positioning its forces wherever they're positioning them has increased the risk to Ukrainian civilians and you know if this re- if this report came out in the first week maybe but if it's come out 6 months into the war where we've seen Ukrainian civilians subject to rape torture murder by the the Russian army, so 
as far as I'm concerned, the risks of civilians can't get any higher. It's up there already. So saying that Ukraine is increasing the risk to those civilians, I just don't buy it. I think it was a fundamentally flawed premise from the start. We could have had that discussion with Amnesty in, you know, in a comfy London office. You don't need to go to the country to see that. I don't. I don't. I think the whole premise of that paper was wrong. I don't believe the increased. I don't believe the risk to Ukrainian civilians can be increased any higher than it is already. I think Russia has shown us what the risk to the Ukrainian civilian population is. I don't think it can get any higher. But the the context it was it was written in. They were looking at a very complex issue in a very complex area through a drinking straw, and they they were not. It was just so narrow, narrow-minded and, and, and narrowly observed. And I think if they'd gone wider, taken in more context and, and asked people, do you feel safer with your army near you or, or well away from you? Would you rather have your men and women with guns close to you or, or far away? I, I think that would be an interesting question. I think they, they just looked at one very small aspect of it, didn't contextualise it and, and came out with came out with a with a a ridiculous conclusion i don't know if this is i don't know if they're trying to remain relevant i don't know if they're trying to get publicity on the back of the war i don't know what i don't know what they're up to but i think it was a very poorly um a very poorly commissioned piece of work and and i don't think the the actual conduct of the work the research itself did any did it any favors and i think you know i stand on the position that this is an illegal immoral and unjustified war launched against ukraine by russia and i think if you if you hold on to that thought then any of these any of these reports and there will be others and there will be people trying to make i say false equivalence arguments or or trying to be controversial or trying to be exciting and, and up, up, you know with shocking and, and all the rest of it and that's fine you know great great let them have let them have their moment but but what it does is it dents that it dents that box within which I've put the words, this is an illegal, immoral, unjustified war launched against Ukraine by Russia. And and I, I don't think you should be taken away from that box. I, I am not going to be taken away from that box. And I think the more that you get reports like this, then people who don't have the time to pay so much attention to the war as we do and, and listeners to this space and podcast do... I think I think this can bleed in there, and it can shape the narrative, and it, so it's unhelpful. It is dangerous, and I think it is it is false. There is no false equivalence. I don't believe that Ukraine can do anything to increase the risk to civilians from what we've seen Russia capable and willing to do already. And I refuse to see anything. I can't see anything to take me away from the idea that this is an illegal, immoral, and unjustified war launched against Ukraine by Russia. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. 
Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.